The church became more than a building through the relationships that we built with people at the church to be a part of the body of Christ um, here in our small part of the world. Like, I don't think it's by accident that, that we find ourselves in the community, that Jesus gathered uh, crowds, he gathered smaller groups around himself because we need each other. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning. We're so excited for the opportunity to gather together for worship. I want to give an extra special greeting to anyone who might be a guest with us this weekend, and I want to welcome everyone who is joining us online this morning. If you have a Bible with you, let me hear your pages turning to the book of Acts, and when you get to the book of Acts, I want you to find chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to spend some time together today. You find that and just hold that ready. This is the second week of a special New Year's message series called Love Your Church. Uh, and uh, it's based on a book, as I mentioned to you last week, that I read sometime last year by the same title, Love Your Church. And what we're doing over the course of the first seven weeks of 2024 is looking at seven responsibilities that are connected to being a member of a local church. But as I told you last week, we're not gonna view these together as responsibilities. We're going to view these together as privileges. And more than anything else, my goal for this message series is pretty singular. I just want this message series to lead all of us <clears throat> to a deeper love for our church. I'm talking about Mount Pleasant Christian Church and all of our impact campuses, a deeper love and a deeper commitment <clears throat> to this church that God has blessed us with the privilege of being a part of. Uh, this last week in our home group, the one that meets in Sandy and my house on Monday nights, we've been together with the same folks for uh, several years. We followed up on last week's message, which is all about belonging to a local church. And a couple of things we talked about in last week's message, if you weren't here, was we talked about the importance of seeing the church the way Jesus sees the church. Because if we see the, way Je the church the way Jesus sees the church, we're gonna see it joyfully. Because Jesus looks at the church, and how can he help but see anything but love? lost people who were found, uh, sinful people who've been redeemed, hurting people who have been restored. And so there's great joy in that. We're just all a bunch of broken folks who come together and through the grace of God, our lives have been changed and we celebrate that when we worship together each weekend. But we also talked about <clears throat> the need to raise um, the level of our, um, uh, the raise our concept of the church. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling on my words a little bit this morning. We were to raise the, the concept of our church uh, and, and to see it uh, or have a higher level of, of, uh, higher level of concept about our church. Because what we need to do is we need to see the church as something that we are responsible for, something that we play a role in, not just as an event, another event in the world or the culture that we're a part of that we attend from time to time, but something that we really are responsible for. And that led to some really good discussion in my home group last weekend because, or last Monday rather, because we talked about the truth that our church, Mount Pleasant Christian Church, is getting ready to experience a significant change in just a few months. And of course, what I mean by that is uh, at uh, the end of June, after what will be at the time almost 23 years of being the senior pastor here at Mount Pleasant, I'm going to retire from full-time vocational ministry. And uh, you're going to have a new pastor, and that's gonna feel really different, at least for a time, because I've been here so long. But let me just share some things with you real quick. I feel compelled to share uh, just a few things with you about that real quickly as we begin this message, which is focused on the importance of gathering together 
as a church family. Here's the first thing. It's okay to talk to me about that. Uh, ever, ever since this announcement's been made, I, I feel like there's a, a, almost a little bit of a, a tension sometimes with people when I'm talking to them um, because I, I understand it's, it's a difficult situation and sometimes it's hard to know what to say. But let me make that a little easier for you this morning by saying it's okay for you to talk to me about that. And I will tell you this, there's not a day that goes by that I don't feel some level of sadness and I don't find myself grieving about this change. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying by that. I, I didn't make this decision lightly. It came with a lot of thought and a lot of prayer. And I really genuinely believe that it's the right thing for me. And it's the right thing for Sandy. And I believe it's the right thing for you. But that doesn't mean I don't feel sadness about it. And I don't grieve it on some level every single day because I love this church so deeply and because I've been a pastor for so many years. It's not a job, it's never been a job, it's a calling and it's been my life. And it's okay for us to talk about it. It's okay for us to be sad together because we can be sad together and at the same time we can appreciate and celebrate the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the plan that we know God has in place for the coming years for Mount Pleasant Christian Church and our impact campuses. Would somebody please say amen to that? Mount Pleasant Christian Church has been in this community for almost 140 years, almost 140 years, and uh, it's been a great church during all that time, and it will continue to be a great church in the years to come. The second thing I would tell you <clears throat> is that you can trust God as he works through our leaders, and I'm talking about our elders, to prepare for this next chapter in the life of Mount Pleasant, to prepare for the future. Um, these men that serve this church as elders are godly men. They are humble men. They are men that understand the culture and the DNA and the values of Mount Pleasant Christian Church. And they will hire someone under the leading of God who will do a tremendous job. And no one will be a bigger cheerleader for that next person than me. No one will. I will pray for and celebrate all of the good things that happen uh, in the coming years under the leadership of someone new. Um, but here's the third thing I feel compelled to share with you. Uh, all of this is going to require a commitment from each of you. Um, we are talking about different aspects of being part of a local church. We talked about belonging last week. We're talking about gathering this week, next week welcoming, and then caring, and then serving, and then witnessing, and then sending. And all of these things uh, are, are things that are your responsibility primarily, all of us together as a body. Not just, it's not just about who the leader is. This church is not built on the personality or the gifts or the skills of one person. It's built on the commitment of everyone joining together as a body of Christ. And so I just want to encourage you that way because being a part of a church family is an incredibly special thing. It's a great, great privilege. But it only becomes what God wants it to become when we all understand and embrace that privilege and we play our role. And so I want to give you that word of encouragement. In the book, Center Church, the late Tim Keller 
perfectly captures the beauty of what the gospel can accomplish in all of our lives. And when I talk about the gospel, I'm simply talking about the truth that Jesus came into the world to offer all of us a new and a better life. This is what he writes. He says, the gospel creates community. Because it points us to the one who died for his enemies, it creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. Because it removes both fear and pride, people get along inside the church who could never get along outside. Because it calls us to holiness, the people of God live in loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. Thus, the gospel creates a human community radically different from any society around it. I think that's a great description of the church, or at least what the church is supposed to be. Now, the follow-up question is this. Is this what we experience at Mount Pleasant Christian Church on a weekly basis? And here's my answer. Yes, sometimes. Sometimes. And that's not a bad answer. Because this new community produced by the gospel, this new life that Jesus gives us, and lived out in the local church is not only radical and different, it's also difficult. It can be really hard at times. Primarily because even though people like you and me have been changed by the gospel, by the grace of God, we're still sinful, imperfect people. At least that's true for me. I don't know how you would describe yourself. But we're still sinful and imperfect people. But we have this opportunity to work on living in this new community when we belong to a local church, what we talked about last week, and when we gather together as a church, which is what we're talking about this week. And that brings us to Acts chapter 20. And so if you've got your Bible open there and you're able this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Now, we're going to look at Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12, and there's a really unique, unusual event that happens in this passage of Scripture. If you grew up in Sunday school like I did, you probably already know that, or if you're just a good student of the Bible, you probably already know that. Maybe you're not familiar with this passage, and if you're not, it will be easy to see what I'm talking about. Here we go. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs rooms, or room rather, where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking deep, or into a deep sleep rather, as Paul talked on and on and on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always make the reading of Scripture a priority in our service, and we always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing. Now, the unique event or unusual event uh, that Paul talks about here in Acts chapter 20 is not that someone fell asleep. I've been a preacher too long to know that that's a unique event. The unique event, of course, is that someone fell asleep, fell out a window, and died, and Paul brought him back to life. Now, I look around the worship center. We don't have any windows. I think there's, I don't think there's any real inherent danger there, but we do have folks sitting in the balcony, so pay attention up there this morning. I don't want anything to happen to you. But what we're going to do as we look at this text, more than focus on what happened with Eutychus and this incredible supernatural miracle of Paul bringing him back to life is we're just going to notice some specific things about this church in Troas that 
are really the foundation of what we do when we gather together as a church family for worship. So if you like to take notes, write down this first thing. And it's really a simple message. It's not really that dynamic, but it's the meat and potatoes of gathering. So if you like to take notes, write down somewhere the first day of the week. Number one, the first day of the week. Because when we read Acts 20 and verse 7, we see that Luke tells us the church in Troas gathered together on the first day of the week to worship. Why was that the practice of the early church? Well, the answer is really simple. It was because the first day of the week, Sunday, was the day that Jesus rose from the grave, conquered death, and gave hope to all mankind. That's why Tony Merida, in his book, Love Your Church, writes, every Sunday, in a sense, is Easter Sunday for Christians. We gather to remind ourselves of the glorious fact that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Somebody say amen to that. Now, there are other references in the New Testament to the first day of the week being a time that God's people came together. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian church to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. There was this habit of gathering together on the first day of the week. From the very beginning, the church met together on Sunday. Now, as we look at our text in Acts chapter 20, it appears that the church in Troas met on Sunday night. Uh, We have Saturday night church. We had it last night. We have Sunday morning churches, or church services, rather. We're in one of them right now. When churches first began to meet on Saturday night, which was many, many years ago, and primarily for our movement of churches, that happened at Southeast Christian Church just down the road in Louisville, Kentucky. They were running out of room in their facility as they grew, and they needed to add a service, and so they added a Saturday night service. When they did that, I know for a fact, because I've talked to them about this, there were a lot of people who really pushed back against that because they had this very strong, maybe even legalistic view about this biblical reference for meeting on the first day of the week. And so there were people who thought that to meet to worship any other time than a Sunday was really, really wrong. But today, churches meet at all different times. My brother Kenneth, who's preached here a few times uh, that you're very familiar with, is one of the pastors at Compassion Christian Church in Savannah, Georgia. And their weekly worship schedule is they have a church service on Wednesday night, and then they have church services on Sunday morning. Wednesday night and Sunday morning. Uh, uh, last fall, I have a friend who uh, has, uh, leads a church in Jeffersonville, Indiana, just, just uh, outside of Louisville. And uh, it's called East Side or East View, East, East something. It's East something Christian Church. I always get it confused. My apologies to those, fo- those folks. But they, their service schedule is a Thursday night and Sunday morning. So uh, Sandy and I drove over there that weekend, and or that week rather, and I preached there on Thursday night, and they had a full house of people. I have lots of other friends who have that Thursday night, Sunday morning schedule for their churches, and then I have friends who have a Friday night and a Sunday morning schedule, and then there are churches like us that have a Saturday night and a Sunday morning uh, schedule for worship. A, a lot of churches move to that Wednesday or Thursday or Friday because the problem with weekends uh, for many people today in our modern culture is that we have children involved in extracurricular activities that happen both on Saturdays and Sundays, like baseball tournaments, soccer tournaments, things. Those don't just happen on Sunday morning. They happen on Saturday and Sunday, and so a weeknight gives uh, folks the opportunity to worship and still do the things that they do on 
the weekend. Um, but regardless of what you think about that or regardless of what kind of a church schedule you follow, uh, the bottom line is there has to be a literal time where people gather together as a priority when it comes to being a local church because there's so much value in the experience of gathering together for worship. Look at these words on the screen from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. The Hebrew writer says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, there are always people who have said, and there always will be people who say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you know what? While I understand that, at least what they're saying on some level, I mean, you're not going to die and stand before God holding an attendance sheet in your hand. Um, I really strongly disagree with that because I could spend the rest of my time this morning just talking about what the Bible says about the value and the importance of gathering together for worship from a biblical perspective. We could say, number one, that it is a biblical command. And we could go back to Hebrews chapter 10, 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. When I read that verse, I'm reminding that gathering together with other Christians, personal contact with other Christians is not just suggested in the Bible, it's commanded in the Bible. And in my NIV translation of this where it says, let us not give up uh, the, if you look at that in the original language, that word could easily be translated neglect. Don't neglect this as you go through your daily uh, or your weekly schedule. Make sure that gathering together for worship is a priority for you if you're a believer. I, I could say number two, we gather together to be equipped. I go to this great passage from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, and it begins in verse 11, and he says, it was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? He says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We gather together so that we can be taught and so that we can be equipped and so that we can be strengthened and on and on and on. I could say number three, we gather together to practice all the one another instructions of the New Testament. The New Testament tells us to love one another and accept one another and serve one another and bear one another's burdens, be patient with one another, submit to one another, pray for one another. You can go on and on. There are some, depending on what list you look at, there are some 59 different one another instructions in the New Testament. We don't do that on our own. We do that when we are together. Now, I could continue, but I'll stop right there. Now, I will tell you, as I look back on my time as a pastor in the local church, which began in May of 1980, one of the biggest changes, if not the biggest change I've seen in church, is that Sunday, the weekend, is just no longer set aside in some kind of a, for lack of a better word, sacred way for a lot of people as a time for rest and a time for worship, for gathering for worship. And there was a time when all these other things started to get in the way of weekend worship where I really thought as a pastor, you know what? The people of God, Christians are gonna come to a place in their life where they're gonna recognize this is not the best thing for our family. But I was wrong about that. That's not gonna change. So what are we going to do about the instruction of the scripture and the absolute essential importance when it comes to being a part of a local church and loving our church? What are we going to do about this instruction of gathering for worship? In Tony Merida's book, Love Your Church, he writes these words. It's actually dangerous for you to not assemble regularly. 
The corporate assembly is one of the ways God sustains and blesses his people for long-term obedience. And then he says, I sometimes meet a Christian who gathers weekly and is not thriving in their faith, but I have yet to meet a Christian who does not join the gathering and who is. He says, I've not met a Christian who doesn't gather for worship who is thriving in their faith. And so we gather together to worship. Here's the second thing. Write this down. The preaching of God's word. The first one was uh, the first day of the week so that we can gather together to worship. The second is the preaching of God's word. We go back to Acts 20, and the latter part of Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 says, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Wow. And then this young guy, Eutychus, falls asleep. He falls out of a window. He dies. Paul brings back to life. But right after that, in verse 11 of Acts chapter 20, it says, then, talking about Paul, then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And then it says, after talking until daylight. So he preached until midnight. And then after a little bit of fireworks, he started again and he talked until daylight. Here's the big takeaway from that. Write this down somewhere. Don't ever complain about how long I preach. That's not the big takeaway, you know. The big takeaway is the priority that we see placed in a local church in the first century on the preaching and teaching of God's word. Every one of us needs to be a student of the Bible, every one of us, on some level. That means we need our own consistent time of reading and studying and meditating on and memorizing God's word. But we also need the priority of hearing the Bible taught by others who have been called to do that and who have been gifted to do that. I've been a preacher for a long time. I spend almost every week of my life on some level reading, studying my Bible, for preparing messages and Bible study lessons and things like that. But I always carve out time in my weekly schedule to listen to a sermon from someone else because I love to listen to good preaching. I love to listen. These are, the, these are some of my favorites. They're, because of my age, they're a little older. I love to listen to Erwin Lutzer, who for so many years was at Moody Church in Chicago. I love Alistair Begg. I love David Jeremiah. I love Bob Russell, who uh, is a friend of mine. Uh, I love to listen to some of my friends who preach in churches around the country. Just this last week, I listened to a sermon in my office from Cam Huxford, who is the lead pastor at the church my brother serves at, Compassion Christian Church in Savannah, Georgia. It was about a 40-minute sermon, and I listened to it. And you know what it was on? It was a stewardship sermon on the truth that the Bible says God owns everything. Do you think I know about everything the Bible says about that? from years of preaching the same thing. I do, but it was a great message, and I learned things that were new. I heard things that were new to me. I thought about things in ways I had not thought about them before as a result of listening to that message. Here's one thing that all really good preachers have in common. The power of what they share does not come from them or their personality or even their presentation, but from the authoritative, life-changing power of the Word of God that they teach. I like the way Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He describes himself. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. <clears throat> I came to you in fear and weakness and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's 
what good preaching has in common. Now, there's two sides to this reality of listening to or hearing uh, the preaching of God's word. There's the delivery of the message from the preacher, but then there's your responsibility as a listener. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but I've told you multiple times over the years that I learned a long time ago as a preacher, there are two sermons preached every weekend. There's the one that is actually preached and the one that is sometimes heard, and they're not always the same thing. Because I've had lots of people come up to me and say something to me. Maybe they were mad about something. Maybe they were especially excited about something. Uh, Say something to me about the message. And as I'm looking to them, in my mind, here's the thought. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's not the sermon that I preached. But sometimes, you know, the way it's heard uh, is a little bit different than the way that it is delivered. Whoever the preacher is, he needs... the embrace the responsibility of preaching God's word in a way that honors God. It's not about opinions or ideas or illustrations or stories. It's about the truth of God's word studied and explained and applied in careful and thoughtful ways. But when we're in the audience, and that would include me as well, we need to make sure that we're listening well. In fact, in the book, Love Your Church, Tony Meredith gives several things related to listening. I'm going to go through them, but I'm going to do this quickly. So um, if, you don't, if you're not able to write all of them down, I apologize in advance. Number one, he says you've got to listen humbly. We don't stand over the scripture to criticize it. We sit under it to allow it to confront us and instruct us and change us. That doesn't mean we can't ask questions about it, but uh, we don't criticize the scripture. Number two, you've got to listen intently. You've got to stay alert and pay attention. Is that difficult sometimes? It is. It is. Are some preachers more interesting to listen to than others? others. They are, but we listen intently. Number three, we listen biblically. I love this description of the church in Berea in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. This is what it says about them. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, note this, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I love that about them. You you can't just take for granted every word that somebody speaks just because they're standing behind a pulpit. You need to make sure that they're telling you the truth. We need to listen personally. That means when we listen to a sermon, we don't think, man, I really wish my husband or my wife were here right now to hear this because they are really a wretched sinner and they need this bad. (laughs) Or anybody else that might be on our mind. We listen to how this message will apply to our lives. We listen communally. We do it together. We do it together. And there's power in that. We listen obediently. We don't just hear the word. We do what it says. We listen practically. We, we, we look for specific ways we can apply the Word of God to our life. We listen gratefully. We're thankful that we have access to the Word of God. Not everybody in the world has the ability to do what we're doing right now and gather together without fear to boldly worship God and to listen to His Word. The key word in all of these things is the word listen. Listen, I... I can tell you, and I can say this from an honest heart, preaching changed my life when I was very young, and it continued to change my life over the course of the last 50 years. Um, I write a, a column for Christian Standard Magazine for every edition that's about preaching. They give me a thousand words in six magazines a year to write something about preaching, something practical for preachers. The last column that I submitted that will be in the next magazine was was not so much a practical column, but I wrote about the fact that I was getting ready to retire from full-time vocational ministry, and I just wrote this column that said, preaching changed my life. I can remember when I was a boy sitting in church and the preacher in my home church who was not a particularly dynamic man in any way. His name was Delbert DeBalt. 
Delbert DeBalt. He was, seemed like he was ancient to me when I was a little boy. And he preached a sermon from John chapter 10 where Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The older translations. And he preached this sermon about what that word abundantly really meant from the original language. And it captivated my heart when I was just young. I'd never heard anybody preach like that before where they took the, a, an English word and explained it on a deeper level. I remember Sandy and I and our kids used to go to the North American Christian Convention every year. Uh, it was basically the only vacation we would take. It would happen in July, and it would happen different places around the country. We actually, our whole family came to Indianapolis several years before we moved here uh, because the North American Christian Convention was often held in Indianapolis. But we went to one in Oklahoma City one time. We were living in Houston. Uh, we didn't have Trisha yet, and Andrew couldn't have been more than two years old. And so we drove from Houston, Oklahoma City, and I, I was just like in my 20s and trying to plant this church and build this church and so discouraged so much of the time, no help, no, no resources from anybody. And I sat by myself, Sandy wasn't there one night, I sat by myself in one of the main sessions, and John Caldwell, of all people, who for so many years preached at Kingsway Christian Church in Avon, Indiana, planted that church and has become a great friend of mine since then, preached this sermon called God Wants an Evangelistic Church, and my heart was broken. About the need and the responsibility to build an evangelistic church, to reach lost people. I bought the cassette tape. That's how long ago it was. I bought the cassette tape, and I listened to it over and over and over again in that 10-hour uh, drive home to Houston. I could give you more examples. But preaching has changed my life. I would venture to say that there are some here who would say the same thing. At some point in your life, you can look back at a moment when you were gathering with other believers and somebody stood up and opened the word of God and pierced your heart with the truth that they spoke. That's what happens when we gather. It's not the only time that can happen, but when we gather in a setting like this, it is so special and so spiritual and so holy in moments when the word of God is being taught. Here's the third thing, write this down, the Lord's Supper. As we look back in Acts chapter 20, uh, again, in the very first verse, it says, on the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. Now, everyone look up here. There's a really good chance that that doesn't refer to the Lord's Supper like we think, but maybe to a communal meal. It could have been the Lord's Supper, but there's no way to know for sure. But the bottom line is when you read the New Testament, you see that one of the identifying characteristics of gathering together for worship was the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. And so we do that every week, and we do this joyfully together remembering this truth that we all are all saved by the grace of God. What a tremendous communion meditation Andrew shared with us this morning to remind us of that. And how thankful are we for not just Andrew, but, but for Matt Pineda and for Chris Franklin and, and uh, Aaron Gable and uh, Fred Meadows and all of the guys who stand up here and share communion meditations with us to help prepare our hearts each and every week to receive the Lord's Supper in the right way, to take communion in the right way. Uh, but we celebrate the grace of 
of God. We, we don't celebrate our good works or our human effort to be good. We celebrate what God did for us when he sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. Of, of all the explanations I've ever seen or encountered for communion, I think Mark Moore in his book, Core 52, really captures it best when he says this. He says, communion, this is the importance of communion together. Communion looks backwards, it looks forward, it looks inward, and it looks outward. Backward, forward, inward, and outward. It looks backward because when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he told the disciples, and this is Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. That word remembrance in the original language of the New Testament could be translated memorial. And so our communion is, is a memorial of sorts to Jesus and his death on the cross where we remember what he did. And so we look back and remember that. But it's not just remembering Jesus and his death on the cross, that is the most important thing, but also we remember all the many prophecies that we see about this uh, throughout the Old Testament. I mean, Adam and Eve sinned in, in the very first few verses of Genesis chapter three, and all you have to do is get to Genesis 3.15 before you see the first prophetic message about Jesus coming. And all through the Old Testament, there are both verbal predictive prophecies and typical prophecies about Jesus coming to die, to shed his blood so that our, we can be saved and forgiven for our sin. One of the things that always comes to my mind is the great story of how when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and Moses was there and, the, and he was, God was using the plagues to soften Pharaoh's heart to let the Israelites go. And the last plague was the death of firstborn. You remember that story, the firstborn of the son of Pharaoh all the way down to the firstborn of the lowest handmaiden was going to be uh, taken. The firstborn of livestock would be taken, but God protected the Israelites from that passing over of the death angel as a part of that plague when they did what? They took the blood of the lamb and they painted it on the doorposts of their homes. And so they were saved by the blood of the lamb. That's a typical prophecy about what Jesus did when he died on the cross because you and I are saved by the blood of the lamb. And so we look back. Communion looks forward because when Paul wrote about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 26, he says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it looks forward in the sense that we, when we take communion, we hold those emblems in our hands. We don't just, we don't just think about some historic event because when Jesus died on the cross, that wasn't the end of Jesus, was it? Because three days later, he rose from the dead and with promises all throughout the scripture that he's coming again. And so we look forward. It's a reminder, not just of what Jesus did in the past, but a reminder of what Jesus has promised for the future. Communion looks inward because it's a time when we reflect on our relationship with God, where we stand in our life, spiritually speaking. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is verses 27 and 28, Paul writes and says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. Now, I don't have a time for a detailed explanation of what it means to examine yourself so that you make sure that you don't partake in an unworthy manner. But the bottom line is, we need to make sure we look inwardly in our lives to where we are spiritually speaking. And, you know, it, we take a communion in an unworthy manner when we don't pause to recognize the significance and the meaning of what we're doing. And because we take communion every week, that, that can be easily do because it could be to you where it just it becomes a habit. It's just like a ritual that you perform each and every week. And if that's your perspective, then that would be 
partaking in an unworthy manner. Maybe we, we partake with, of communion, even though we know we have a hidden sin in our lives that we refuse to confess and repent from. Not only that, sometimes we, we partake of communion, even though we know we have a sin in our lives that we daily make provision for. That would be taking communion in an unworthy manner. Maybe we're filled with bitterness or hatred. I don't partake of communion every week. It's very rare when I don't, but I don't do it every week. Because sometimes when I'm sitting right down here in worship, I am so distracted by what's happening in worship in that moment or what's been happening that day. Maybe there was some uh, fault or flaw that was happening. Maybe, maybe I had a bad encounter with somebody before I came into church. There can be a lot of different things, but my mind is thinking about everything uh, except communion. And when that's the case, I don't usually partake because I don't want to be guilty of taking communion in an unworthy manner. And then we, Paul tells, or Mark Moore tells us in his book that communion looks outward. And we do that when we recognize that when we take communion, we're not doing it alone in isolation. We're doing it together. It's a part of our gathering as a family, as a community, and as a body. It's something meaningful we do. Today, when the second service is over, I'm going to go home and we're going to have a family lunch at our house. We're going to have everybody there. All nine of us will be gathered around the table to celebrate being together. And we're going to celebrate my son-in-law's birthday. Uh, it's a couple of weeks late, but because of schedules, we're not able to do it until today. And he got to choose the meal, and, uh, and I approve of the meal. He got to choose <laughs> the dessert, and I approve of the dessert. And we're going to have so much fun doing it together. And then afterwards, if you know anything about our family, we're going to celebrate his birthday because he's going to flip a birthday cake with lit candles. Uh, and uh, it's just a silly thing that we do just to make birthdays extra special. And it will be so enjoyable because we're doing it together. What, what do you think? If my son-in-law Morgan celebrated his birthday and he could do all of those things, but if he celebrated his birthday all by himself or if he did all those together with his family, which is better. I think sometimes it's just that simple. Here's the fourth and final thing, and I'm in the red, so we'll do this really quickly. When we gather, we gather for praising and praying. We gather together to praise God together. We know um, that the act of worship encompasses more than just singing songs, but singing is a big part of it. Singing praises to God is, is, is something we see all throughout the scripture. I love these words in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and a train of his robe filled the, uh, filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we're reminding that passage that when we sing, we sing because we're focused on God, not on who's on the platform or anything like that, but we focus on God. In the New Testament, we see that Disciples with Jesus and uh, toward the end of his life and they were in the upper room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and it was an emotional time because he told them he was going away and they were confused and he tried to comfort them but we see in Mark 14, 26 it says when they had sung a hymn they went out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed 
Ephesians 5.19 says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Note that, to the Lord. If we had time, we could go to the book of Revelation and see all that the book of Revelation has about singing praise to the Lord and worshiping the Lord. One of the best quotes in Tony Merida's book, Love Your Church, is this simple quote, a healthy church is a singing church. It's a singing church. When we gather to sing praise to God, we sing to prepare our hearts to be in the presence of God and to prepare our hearts to hear the word of God. We sing because it unites us with those that are around us. We sing because it takes the focus off of us and puts it where it belongs. We sing whether we're skilled or gifted at singing or not. We sing because the one we sing to is worthy of our praise. We do that together and we pray. We all have to have our own private prayer life, but we also need to recognize the value of corporate prayer because in praying together, we show that we're all dependent upon God. And this kind of prayer fills the pages of the scripture. You can't say that you're a follower of Jesus and not pray. We pray for ourselves. We pray for each other. We pray for our church. We pray for our mission partners. We pray for our change for dollar families. We pray for those who make decisions for Christ. We pray to God because we trust God and we believe God has the answers for our lives and he's big enough to handle whatever comes into our life. Last night we had a prayer time. We had people come in the prayer time at the end of the service and so many people came that I stepped out and I prayed for someone who's got a son who is dying. How real is that? And I prayed for someone who has some serious health concerns. And I don't know what the other people were praying about, but I'm sure it was so significant. And so the church is a place where we praise God and it's a place where we pray. And I wish we could talk more about that, but I'm out of time. Let's just close like this and our worship team can come. We gather together for worship because worship changes us into the image of the one that we worship. Corporate worship, family worship, community worship, worshiping together from sincere hearts changes us into the image of the one that we worship. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time in the word today and I pray that you would just drive home in our hearts the necessity of gathering, the necessity that gathering is in belonging to a local church. We, we, we gather together for all of these reasons we've talked about today and so much more. And uh, there, we live in a world where there are a lot of distractions and a lot of things that uh, can get in the way of that, but help us to deepen our hearts have this fundamental commitment of gathering together to encourage one another, to worship you, to draw close to you, to minister to others, and on and on and on. Thank you for this privilege. Help us to not take it for granted, but to embrace it with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.